Chapter Thirteen of Between the Larchwoods and the Weir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Between the Larchwoods and the Weir by Flora Clickman. Chapter Thirteen The Old Wood House. The Old Wood House stands on the lee side of a belt of trees, part of the squirrel's highway, as we call it, that runs down one side of the flower-patch, sheltering it from the bleak north winds. Picture to yourself a building rather smaller than a very small church, built of great blocks of grey stone, with walls nearly two feet thick in places, a red-tiled pointed roof, a door at one end, and in case the walls should prove too flimsy to stand the winter gales, huge stone buttresses prop it up on the off-side, i.e. the side where the ground goes on running downhill, lest the structure should take it into its head to run downhill too. In place of a spire, above the door, a weathercock swings its arrow to the winds. At least, it would swing it on any well-conducted apex but being merely mine, it permanently points south. Not that it is particular where it points. All it asks is to be left in peace, to close its eyes in meditative contemplation of the landscape. We occasionally get a ladder and then a long stick and move it round, trying to urge it to deeds of daring do, but it falls asleep the moment our ministrations cease. The last time... It was a neighbouring farmer who climbed the ladder to reason with it, after I had assured him there was no penalty under the defence of the Realm Act for regulating weathercocks. He was a bit reluctant to touch it at first, as he said, what with clocks not being allowed to tick as they pleased, and the time being jiggered with anyhow, you didn't know where you was with nothing. But once I had taken full responsibility for the affair, he went up with right good will, and, forgetting that it was the arrow alone that needed to move, he gave a sturdy tug to the north, south, east, and west arrangement, and sent the arms of that in all directions. Then when we wanted to fix it up again, the question arose, which was the north? A local light supposed to know everything, who chanced to be passing, was summoned for consultation. After carefully surveying the various corners of heaven, as though looking for enemy aircraft, he said he didn't know as he could say exactly which were in the north, unless he had summat to tell him. We all felt like that too. But if we would afloat a needle on the top of a basin of water, then either the point of the needle, or, let's see, maybe twas the high, he wasn't quite certain which, would point to the north for sure. Well, all hands rushed for basins and needles, as you may suppose, because, whether it was the point or the eye didn't matter much, since we knew the direction in which the north lay, all we wanted was the precise angle. But alas, every needle promptly sank to the bottom of the basin, without so much as a kick. Eventually we refixed the north pole approximately, pending such time as the head of affairs should arrive when we knew we could rely on the small compass at the end of his watch-chain. But Virginia, who uses the weathercock more than most of us, 
as she sees it from her bedroom window, and says it is so useful to dress by, was lugubriously certain his watch would be stolen on the next journey down, and begged me to place the arrow, still asleep, pointing south. Even an approximate south, she said, might at least help to keep her spirits up when a north-easter was blowing. And south it remaineth unto this day, despite all our blandishments, and probably will do so till the end of the war, when the retirement of the food controller, who, presumably, supervises weathercocks, may permit of our using a modicum of grease. The old woodhouse, which, by the way, was originally used for coals, though no trace of this is left upon its clean, lime-washed interior, is the first building you run across as you enter by the top gate, which is the widest entrance we possess. Here you step from the lane right into a tiny larch plantation, and the path to the cottage is arched over with the boughs of the trees, while the brown cones crunch under your boots, or roll away down the steep incline of the path when your foot touches them. It was among these trees that a small clearing was made in the distant past to accommodate this particular outbuilding, though why the coal house was considered the most artistic bit of bric-a-brac to greet you as you enter the main gate is not clear. The actual outline of the building is not remarkable, being merely four walls and a pointed roof with a door and a window, but at least it looks simple, dignified and solid and what it lacks in architectural decoration has been supplied by nature herself. When we first saw it, we called it the private chapel, but later on I found Abigail and co. calling it the picture palace. At any rate, there it stands, shadowed by great oaks seemingly immovable, with their gnarled, wide-stretching arms spread as in blessing over the lowlier woodland things. A big Spanish chestnut, though tardy in coming into leaf, scatters worthless burrs around later on, with generous goodwill. A walnut tree invites the passer-by to rub its aromatic leaves. And is there any treasure trove quite like the walnuts that one finds in the long wet grass on a windy autumn morning? Larches and firs make shady colonnades, with their straight uprising shafts and dark drooping branches. Silver birches, always graceful, no matter how they may have had to twist their trunks to accommodate themselves to their environment, give lightness and vivacity to the whole. Incense there is in abundance. The warm, resinous odour of the larches is always abroad. Mountain ash trees load the air with scent in the late spring and are ablaze with crimson in August. Two or three lichen-covered, twisted old apple trees hang out bunches of pale green mistletoe for all to see during the winter months, and then surprise one with a bride-like flush of white and pink in the spring. Where the sun is brightest, a big hawthorn carpets the ground with white petals in May. Then there are the lovely limes, and the lime tree is much more of a stately lady than is realised by those who only know the sad, maimed and distorted stumps that disfigure suburban gardens in London. But see this lime tree that forms a link in the squirrel's highway. Its trunk measures about ten feet round. 
under the shadow of its drooping, far-sweeping branches, you could give a small Sunday school treat. Though the lowest branches spring from the trunk at least nine feet from the ground, their far ends touch the grass, forming a complete tent of translucent green and gold as you look upwards, through a multitude of layers of leaves, to a sun you cannot see, but which seems to have turned the whole tree into a rippling mass of molten colour. And when it shakes out its bunches of scented yellow blossoms, and trails them by the thousand down each branch and stem, then indeed the lime tree is a lovely lady, and the bees and the butterflies come from far and near to pay her homage. And each tree has a special and distinct winter beauty of its own in the outline of branches and stems and twigs, a beauty that is lost to us once the leaves appear, but which suggests an exquisite etching in winter when the dark lines are silhouetted against the sky. The most graceful is the birch, with its light tracery of fine filaments, often with tassel-like catkins dangling at the end. The oak and beech give the impression of enormous strength in the ease with which they fling out their massive arms, with seldom any tendency to droop. And each tree has its special and distinct melody when the wind signals the forest orchestra. There is the sea surge of the beeches, the swish of the heavily plumed firs, the rain sound of the twinkling aspen, the soft whisper of the birches, the aeolian hum of the pines, and the sibilant rustle of the dead leaves still clinging to the winter oak. Outside the woodhouse door there is a little clearing adjoining the grove of trees where a perfect thicket of wild flowers smiles at you for the greater part of the year. First come the early violets clustering about the roots of the trees and in the shelter of the grey rock fragments, while primroses dot the grass with their crinkly leaves and then send up pink stems covered with silver sheen and delicately scented flowers, each as big as a penny. Oxlips grow on the bank that borders one side of the clearing. Later, it is an expanse of moon daisies, thousands of them swaying the whole day long to the motion of the wind, like the ever-restless surface of the sea. And with the moon daisies are buttercups, crimson clover, rosy purple knapweed, spikes of pink orchis delicately penciled with mauve, all trying to grow to the height of the big yellow-eyed daisies, while here and there ruddy spears of sorrel outtop them all. Tall grasses of every kind are here, some like a fine translucent veil of purple, others grey or a pinky green, some shaking out yellow or heliotrope stamens, some ever trembling like the quaking grass, but all mingling with the tall flowers, softening the surface of the mass of white blossoms that seem in the sunshine almost too dazzling to look upon, were it not for the mist of the grasses that envelops them. Underneath the tall flowers there is a wonderful carpet of lesser-growing things, masses of trefoil, the yellow blossoms often touched with fiery orange, patches of heath bedstraw with its myriads of tiny gleaming white flowers cling to any spot where the grasses leave it room to breathe. Its first cousin, the woodruff, 
preferring a shadier part of the bank at the side, the bank where the wild strawberries grow to a luscious size, and whortleberry bushes add a touch of wildness to the spot. The smaller clovers, both yellow and white, seem to thrive under the bigger flowers, where most else would suffocate. Pink-tipped daisies bloom wherever they can find room to hold up a little face. Rosy pink vetches wander about at pleasure and pretend they are going to do great things when they start to climb the stems of the moon daisies. Where the big fir trees throw a shadow and the sun only touches the grass when it is getting round to the west, foxgloves send up shafts of colour and the pale blue spiked veronica carpets the ground. Still further back, where the sunshine never penetrates, even here something strives to give beauty to barrenness and soften austerity, for the small-leaved ivy starts to climb the hard tree trunks, undoubtedly one of the most beautiful of the many living things that are neighbour to the old woodhouse. And always in the grass there lie the snapped-off twigs and branches of the larches, with their brown picots up stems that are studded with exquisite cones. We strive hard to better nature, to make new designs, to evolve fresh beauty, but with all our skill and experiments we have yet to improve on the cone as a design, with its rhythmic reiteration of the one small motif and the perfection of its proportions. In my mind it ranks with the smoked silver seed ball of the dandelion, both of them examples of absolute beauty derived from the simplest of outlines. The walls of the woodhouse have their share of green. On the north side an ivy, with a gnarled main stem, the size of a fair-sized tree trunk, sends evergreen branches over roof as well as walls. Outside the door, which opens to the south, stone crop has planted itself in masses among the stones, perfect carpet of it that in June is a bright yellow. In the good old times, before my day, the stone crop served as a convenient spot on which to dump the coal sacks. On the western side, where the ground drops down, a warm, snug and sheltered bank, in the long grass, white violets bloom by the thousand in the early spring, their sweet little blossoms streaked with mauve, nestling up to the old grey walls with the trustfulness of little children. Add to this long-fronded ferns growing out from among the wallstones, and you have an idea of the geography of the place. On a hot day, the cool shade on the north side is an ideal resting place. On a chilly day, the south side gives you a shield from the wind. A pile of tree trunks and old logs lying outside fairly ask you to sit for a moment and take in some of the loveliness of the scene. You can never exhaust the whole of it, and if you sit for a minute, you will probably sit there for hours. Here is absolute quiet of spirit, but never silence. The trees are seldom still. All day and all night, the wind upon these hills sways the tall, lithe tops of the larches to and fro, to and fro. The leaves and the catkins of the birches are forever fluttering. The vibrant branches of the pines hum and sing in the breezes, summer or winter, the music of it all never ceases, though it varies in volume according to the season. 
on the hottest summer days the grasses still sigh the bees hum all day long in the clover the blue tits tweet and twitter as they swing about the birches and their cousins the coal tits keep up an endless run of comment in the larches in may the nightingale comes into the grove to sing in june rival chaffinches perch on the top spikes of certain spruce trees always the same bird on the same spike and defy each other and the world in general the stock dove croons over its nest in the tallest firs and the ready brown squirrel scolds you severely if you are coming too near his own particular chosen tree inside the woodhouse you may find many things some you are prepared for some you are not in theory it is sacred to the use of the head of affairs a sort of playhouse and workshop combined wherein no handyman is supposed to set foot and no prying eyes are supposed to discover that the owner is working in a jersey with no qualms over the absence of waistcoat and stiff collar but i often go in when i am anxious to be alone and wanting many things that one cannot put down in words and knowing this the head of affairs doesn't keep his best saws there not the splendid big farmer's saw with its doubly notched teeth that run through big fir trunks with amazing ease nor the finer tools that deal with the short snappy branches no the saw that is left for such emergencies is a nondescript article that now has a wavy very wavy edge and a few of its teeth doubled over a saw that seems as though you can never get it well into the wood and once you have got it in it can't be got out again much less to be made to move with soft purring motion you see i have individuality where sawing is concerned but it is useless to talk about it for i have come to the conclusion that whatever other moral improvements a woman may manage to effect in the man she marries it is a life work to get him to a proper appreciation of her method of goffering a saw but i must beg you not to picture the woodhouse as the home of the miscellaneous collection of nondescript oddments so indescribably dear to every masculine heart there is an outhouse elsewhere that accommodates short lengths of chain pieces of wire netting old locks bits of copper wire staples and hooks broken hinges that might be made to do duty again if any one ever has a gate that prefers its hinges to be broken oil cans a piece of lead pipe various lengths of iron rods broom handles stale putty old keys a couple of invalided padlocks well you know the type of things that every self-respecting man likes to gather around him and keep handy in case he might need them at any moment unfortunately one of the many blighting influences of town life for ever hindering the full flowering of one's better nature is the lack of the necessary space to stock such useful items but in the country one is not so hampered and one's private marine store grows apace and differs only according to the temperament of the collector indeed i have come to the conclusion that country air develops in man and woman alike that tendency to hoard which is so noticeable in early childhood when the small girl collects buttons and clippings from her mother's sewing-room and the small boy bulges the blouse of his sailor suit with string 
and conkers and coloured chalks and old penknives and young frogs. In town, a woman's only outlet, as a rule, is the bargain counter or annual sale or remnant day. These dissipations are denied us in the country, but we make up for it in many other directions. My own particular weakness is jam jars, and the way I pounce on any round pot, be it glass or earthenware, that looks as though it might be made to hold jelly or jam, is quite a study in efficiency. And, like all expert collectors, my collection has subdivisions, or perhaps you would call them ramifications. Cups that have lost their handles, jugs ditto, glasses that once held a rolled tongue or fish paste are all included, and friends, as they bring round a portmanteau full of empty jars at Christmas or on my birthday, say, It is so nice in your case that one knows what you actually want. So much better to give anyone what they really like and will use, rather than some useless bit of jewellery. And I quite agree. There was one moment when I feared my jars would have to go in the general rending asunder of domestic life caused by the war, even though I had determined to stick to them as long as I could. But when that one clear call came for jam pots, naturally I couldn't be a traitor to my country, and I decided the jars at least must go, even though I might perhaps retain the handleless cups and jugs. So I told Abigail to let me know when the grocer called. I interviewed the young lady wearing high white kid boots and an amethyst pendant on her bare chest, who brought my next large consignment of groceries that had to be bought in order to secure a little sugar. But when she heard that there were jam jars to go back, she looked at me coldly from the doorstep, and hurriedly pushing her basket farther up her arm, lest I should attempt to force them into it, I presume, the Abyssinian gold bracelets clanking the while, haughtily informed me that her motor was for delivery only, not for the cartage of empties, and suggested that I should write the manager and see if he would consent to receive them. I'm only human after all, and naturally any woman's temperature would rise in the face of such spurning of her free will offerings. I didn't write, and I'm using the jam jars still. The nation doesn't seem any the worse off, though Virginia points out to me that the war might have ended sooner had I insisted on handing them over. She says every little helps, as is proved by the fact that the very week she put her first fifteen shillings and sixpence into exchequer bonds, the government got the first tank. At any rate, as I never eat preserves myself, I can still, even with a restricted sugar allowance, enjoy the peculiar pleasure that arises within a woman's soul when she is occasionally able to say, quite casually as it were, to a friend, Would you care to have a pot of my new gooseberry and cinnamon jam? They say it's rather good, though of course, etc. And the friend replies, Oh, I should love it, dear. Such a treat. That jar of ginger marmalade I took home last time was positively delicious. Everyone said, etc. One favourite item for collection among the cottagers is old bottles, and the stock you will see in some of their outhouses is often most extensive and varied. On one occasion, an old man who was doing some odd day's work for me about the garden, in the absence of the handyman, 
was deploring the way the rabbits devastated the cabbages. "'I'll get rid on em for e if you'll leave em to me,' he assured me. I said I only wished he would, as they are a real plague at times. Imagine my horror a few days later, when I took some friends along to see the vegetables, to discover a legion of empty whisky bottles, labels intact, neck downwards in the soil, and dotted about the vegetable garden in all directions. The old man explained that they were put there to scare their rabbits, as they was dreadful frit bottles. But my friends refused to believe that so honest-looking an old Amos could have brought them with him. The inside of the woodhouse is as aloof are the hills from our machinery-driven, smoke-begrimed, petrol-flavoured twentieth century. Even when work is in progress, here is no hustle, there are no shortcuts to the other side of a larch log, the saw must go steadily, patiently, almost slowly, if it hopes to get through the tree at one standing. To step from the hot noonday glare on a summer day into the cool seclusion of these thick stone walls is to enter a haven of peace and quiet that would seem to belong to the forest primeval rather than to this noise-stricken age. The window opening to the north excludes the fierce sun, but the yellow-washed walls give light and cheeriness, and the ivy, that ubiquitous plant that scorns all disadvantages and overcomes every obstacle, has crept in under the red tiles and hangs in festoons from the dark rafters, while in other places its pale green shoots have found for themselves a way clean through the thickness of the wall, pushing along crevices and around the stones, till at last they have come to light on the inner side, where they immediately proceed to drape lopped trunks and big branches standing in the corner. It is no mere accumulation of timber and sticks that is housed within these rough old walls. The very spirit of the forest seems to permeate the place. Everything is part and parcel of the big outside. The stones that pave the floor, the heap of cones in one corner, waiting to brighten up smouldering winter fires and set them all aglow, the solid sections of some sturdy oak cut to just the right height for seats, the bark stripped from a birch tree, silver-white even now, with grey and pinkish paper-like peelings and black breathing marks, and the great brown branches of larch, a tracery of studded twigs and stems and cones that have been placed across the end of the woodhouse, and sweep the rafters at the top, looking, as you enter the door, like some wonderful rude screen, dark brown with age, shutting off an ancient yellow-washed chancel, though such a screen no mortal hand could ever carve. The larch is always in evidence, and gives a resinous odour to the place, as does the sawdust by the bench, a rich brown pile, for very little of our hillside wood is white, most of it ranges from reddish-brown to mahogany colour, though here is a small, creamy-white gate in course of construction, merely a little wicket to keep the calves out of the orchard, that is made of straight, round branches, slit down the centre, so that one side of each is flat and the other semicircular. The design is simplicity itself. Some uprights with a few cross pieces to hold them together and suggest a trellis. 
yet the rich cream colour and the satiny surface of the wood make it a thing of distinct beauty. This is only a branch of the lime tree, with the bark peeled off. In an ordinary way we seldom have a chance to notice the intrinsic beauty of wood itself. Of course we see it in its polished perfection when it comes to us in some choice piece of furniture or panelling, but this is not exactly the beauty to which I refer. Each branch, each tree trunk has, in its unpolished state, definite characteristics of its own, quite distinct from those we see in the finished product civilization regards as the one end to be aimed for. These characteristics may be rough and are frequently rugged, but their appeal is often all the stronger for this fact. Look at the wonderful ribbing on the rind of this Spanish chestnut. What is it that wakes up in you when you study its lines and formation? You cannot say, yet you respond to it in an indefinable manner. These branches of applewood, only gnarled old things, twisted and crooked and all out of shape, some people would say, yet you know that they would not have been nearly so lovely had they been straight as a dart. The larches with their strong bark showing grey and red and green, and furrowed like the sea-sand, isn't there something in this that calls to you from back recesses of your being, and reminds you of the time when you, no, not you, but your ancestors, centuries ago, lived not so much in cities and houses made with hands, as out of doors, finding mystery in the green-roofed aisles and the cathedral dimness of forests long since felled? To those of us who spend much time among these hills, each tree within the woodhouse comes as a friend, with a definite personality and distinct association, and we regret its individual going out, even though we know it to be inevitable. This giant, that leans against the outside wall, with no possibility of ever getting inside the door until it has been sawn in half, is a big fir, where a squirrel nested, that healed right over in a blizzard. Here is the tall cherry tree that died of a hollow heart, so beloved of the birds, that they left us never a one if we got up later than half-past four the morning the cherries were ripe. This is the bough from the big plum tree that broke down last August under its weight of fruit. These branches of old apple trees are some of the winter wreckage that was strewn about the orchard. See the lichen that covers them. Could anything be more satisfying to look upon? And these are some of the birches that seemed so frail as they bent to the wind on the slopes with purple twigs and green leaves always moving. Until you have actually handled them, you scarcely realise the strength and toughness of the delicate-looking bark, and you henceforth take a much more personal interest in Hiawatha and his canoe, even though his tree was another member of the family. And that convenient stump you are sitting upon is part of a hoary pear that used annually to clothe itself in white, and then contribute more gallons of perry than it does to think of in these more sober days. But no mere catalogue of contents can describe the charm of this little wind-swept place. To realise it you must first of all stand in need of quiet and retreat. When the craving comes upon you that impels us all, at one time or another, to get away from things and be alone with ourselves and nature, 
that we may rediscover our souls. Take a book, if you will. It matters not what, for you won't read it, but to some it is essential that a book be in the hand, if they are to sit still for a moment, and climb the hill to that wood-house. Take a seat on the beech-log by the door, and let yourself absorb some of the spirit of your environment. Keep quite still, when the squirrel trails his bushy tail down the path. He won't inquire after your national registration card. Neither will the pheasant, even though he raises his head with a suspicious jerk as he is feeding among the grass. Little rabbits will dart in and out of their burrows among the bracken. The woodpecker will mock at you from a tree that waves above the roof. A robin will streak down from nowhere like a flash, and stand as erect as a drill sergeant on the corner of the workbench while he inquires. But there is an interruption. He excuses himself for a moment while he goes off to thrash his wife, who ventured to peep in at the window. Let them all have their way. They are as much a part of the general atmosphere of the place as the sweet scent of the evening dew upon the grass, and the ceaseless sighing of the wind in the branches. Moreover, this is home to them. The little folk of the forest are so companionable when you know them. Even the same butterflies will come again and again. I recently spent two hours a day for a fortnight in this spot, and all the time apparently the same butterfly hovered about the door, resting every few minutes on the warm rock among the stone crop, and fiercely chasing off any other butterfly that came within its evidently marked-out domain. And the little folk never bore you with their boastings, nor weary you with platitudes. They are content to let you think your own thoughts, to take you as you are, if you will but recollect that theirs are ancient privileges that have descended to them as a world-old heritage. It is you who, helpless in the grip of civilization, sold your forest hearth-rights long since, and are now but a stranger, or at best a passing guest, in this outdoor world that was man's first home. Gradually quiet possesses you, and you hear the trees talking of things that have far outstripped the clash and turmoil of modernity. What is it they say, those swaying boughs and branches that throb with every wind, and these that stand around you, silently, waiting their last service to man, each with some final sacrificial offering, the apple-wood giving in incense, the oak giving in strength, and the laurel giving in flame? Theirs is a blessing rather than a message, a lifting of a load from the overburdened heart rather than the teaching of stern lessons. And as you shake off some of the dust of earth that has clogged your soul, you find yourself sending out thoughts in directions long forgotten. The things of earth take on new proportions, the first being often last, and the last becoming first. The ministry of the forest trees can never be entirely explained, but one remembers with reverence that our Lord himself worked in some such little wood-house, where he touched the trees, and fashioned the timber with his sacred hands. Haply he left his benediction when he passed that way. End of chapter 13